following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. In this church history sermon series, we take a look at people and events that still speak to our time and place. For more information, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If your Bible's in front of you, or if you don't, go underneath the pew in front of you there in the seat and grab your Bibles. We'll be in Romans 1 today. Um, page 939 in those Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one, please grab it. Um, I apologize. Two things. First of all, uh, uh, you know, for, first of all, you are getting to take part in watching and being part of an unseasoned zealot uh, as I preach here. Normally, Stacy's the one that's preaching. Um, he's been gracious enough to bring me along, and uh, over the past year and a half, we've preached through Mark together. And uh, so if you're new... Um, welcome. Uh, Stacy's normally the one that he's doing most of the preaching, but as we go through this, um, I get a chance as well to, to bring forward the scriptures. The second thing I want to apologize for is that this is not the norm. Usually we are doing um, a book. So we did for the last three years, we did Mark. Uh, we've gone through it and we take a book and our approach is to bring the book out, follow along as God has brought us through and the writer is bringing us through the scriptures. We don't pick and choose what we want. Rather, we go through every piece of the text because all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. None of it is worth throwing away. So we're going to normally take the Scripture and we're going to travel all the way through as much as we can, usually book by book. This morning, we will not be doing that. This morning, we will be taking a text and we still will expose or the expository preaching of the text. However, the method will not be as though we're starting in Romans today. Um, where we're starting is this little mini-series that we've talked about. Stacy preached, if you were here last week and got to hear, or maybe you listened to the download. Uh, either way, Stacy st- started us off on a little series that we're doing on church history. We're going through church history not to teach her st- church history. That's a great thing to do, but that's not what we gather together to do. Um, rather, we are here to proclaim Christ, and I want to remind us of that. This is not about learning about, last week we learned about the Montanists. This week, we're going to learn more about Martin Luther. My goal today is not for us to walk away knowing more about Martin Luther. If you want to know more, take a class. There's lots of good schools around. Take something online. Read a good book. Roland Bainton, Here I Stand, is one of the best Luther books that are out there. It's excellent reading. It's enjoyable, and you learn tons. Or if that's too much for you, or you could come tonight to Core Seminar. We also have our Core Training Seminar tonight. Yes, I know, it's a shameless plug for you to come back tonight. Not for my sake, but rather the interaction that we will have around the Word. And tonight what we'll cover specifically is Luther's understanding of the theology of the cross versus a theology of glory. And I won't get into that right now, but tonight we'll work through that and, uh, and understand what he's talking about, why it's so important to him. However, this morning we're going to start and understand Luther, and uh, we're going to take one of his doctrinal pieces that were so important to him, and that he not came up with, but rather discovered in the text, and we will be preaching through that today. Sola fide, if you know what that means, faith alone. So Romans 1.17 is where we'll be covering. We'll be starting out, uh, we'll read 1.16 and 17. Um, So my goal, again, is not to preach Luther or to teach Luther. That's not, that could be of some special help to you, but it's not going to change your life. Jesus Christ and the preaching of His Word can and will change your life. That's why we're not here to just tell stories. We are here to proclaim Christ, not because it is 
my message, but rather it's the message that's been handed to us and we want to tell it to the world. And that's what we're called to do. So we don't want to slacken that and rather we are preaching Christ today. So you will hear about Luther again. We'll make it clear though, we preach Christ and him crucified. So let's read our text if you have it. Um, 1, 16 and 17. We're just going to read the two verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. God, use this feeble tongue for your own purposes this morning. Guide us, I pray, through your word. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the truth that you have for us in your word. We submit ourselves, we bring ourselves under the word and submit and and ask your spirit to work in us belief and repentance. Would you show us your word? Would you work it in us? Massage it so that we cannot do anything but respond to it. May I not be a distraction, but rather a faithful servant in the ministry of the word. It's in Jesus' wonderful, holy, and giving name we pray. Amen. So let me begin. I don't think that it would be helpful for you if I did a whole thing on Luther, but I want to give you four things in the way to begin with, before we actually get into the text, to begin with to remind you of who Luther is and what he's done for the church at large, as God used him, and then even Cornerstone, actually. Four things. One, so this is kind of like a little, sorry, this is almost like a little appendices I'm bringing up at the beginning. So the beginning thing, a couple of things. One is that he broke from the Roman Catholic Church. If you, I'm sorry if you came and thought this was Cornerstone Catholic Church of St. Stacy, you're incorrect. We are a Protestant church, um, and, and really that is a result heavily on the Reformation and very much squarely on the work that God did through Martin Luther as he broke from the Roman Catholic Church. Second thing, Luther's devotion to the local church um, and the people and the actual being a churchman or a pastor. Not only did he break from the Roman Catholic Church or sit in his ivory tower, he was working in the Word, preached like four or five times a week on a regular basis. He, uh, he wrote hymns. We, we sang one of them, Mighty Fortress of Our God. 500 years later, we're singing that hymn. And it is relevant. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He cares about the church, the people, not just writing theology. In fact, if you'll come tonight, we'll talk about, he's not okay with us talking about a theology of glory or a theology of the cross. It's not a theology. You have to be a theologian of the cross. It actually has to change you. For Martin Luther, it's not okay to just talk about it. So Luther, again, he preaches, he writes hymns, he writes the larger catechism, which is actually given to pastors for them to memorize and work through and understand their own doctrine. He writes all these pamphlets for helping the church know how to do church. Because you've got to remember, all there was before is the, the Roman Catholic Church. There's not like the Roman Catholic Church of Germany and uh, you know, uh, the Baptist Church in Germany. That's, that's, not, that's not happening. There's nothing else. It's the Roman Catholic Church. That is it. So for him to do this, again, he has to rewrite how to do church. And he does. He writes pamphlets and he writes letters and says, this is how we should do this as ones that follow Jesus Christ alone. Um, so that. So we've got breaking from the Catholic Church, his devotion to the local church, that impacts us very much. Third thing, his commitment to the Word of God in the language of the people. Now, I want to make it clear, Luther's not alone in any of this, right? He's not like the only one that did any of this. I'm just bringing you into speed and giving you a picture of where he was and what kind of stuff he did. 
he by himself, and I'm, if you're here to talk about uh, the end of Mark, Stacy talked about Erasmus doing his Greek New Testament and, um, and, and, and bring that forth. Do you remember that? If, if you do, he, he brings forth the Greek New Testament. Luther takes that Greek New Testament, no one's done this yet, and he translates it into German. So that, let's say we're German and we're here, you couldn't read because it was in either Greek, Hebrew, uh, or Latin. That was it. And if you don't know Latin and you're a regular blue-collar worker, there's no way you're going to know Latin. And the, you're at the mercy of the person here who knows Latin and isn't speaking it out. Luther's like, no, there's no way that should be happening. The people need the word of God. So he, he not only makes it, does the work, but then he is making these Bibles to go out in the German language. Are they perfect? No. But the people are finally seeing the word of God in their language, being able to read it, have family devotions. They couldn't do that before unless they had memorized it in Latin <laughs> or the ideas. This is huge. So Luther's done that. The last thing, and it may seem small to you, but Luther is committed to discipleship. So is Jesus. <laughs> so are we. Luther does something else. He, I said the large catechism. Well, if there's a large one, there's probably a small one. Yes, there is. He also writes a smaller catechism. The whole purpose of the smaller catechism is to give to children, to learn, to teach them doctrine, to teach them the right passages to go to so that they know the correct answers about who God is. He gives that to them. He also does a thing, if maybe some of you in this room might have heard of this little pamphlet that it's little snippets of that come out now as a return. It's called Table Talk. Um, table Talk came out... Um, <laughs> As men were sitting around Luther's table, he would invite them into his home. They would eat and drink and enjoy each other's time. They would enjoy family worship and singing together. And then they would discuss and they would go through scriptures for hours after their meals. This happened on a regular basis. So much so that there, these young men and students and people who would be around Luther's table began to write it down. They're like, this stuff is, this is important. It's good. We want to read, write some of this stuff down. Do they have to? No. My point being, he was committed both to children and their upbringing and the growth of them, but also to the rest of the church, these young men who he would pass on to them. And Table Talk is still, you can still read snippets of what he had talked about around that table. So I want to at least give you a quick background of kind of stuff that he's into. A lot of it touches us in many ways. Um, but again, you know, he, he's not just this ivory tower theologian. He's like a gritty hardworking with the people pastor. That's what he is about in the word and being controlled by it. Today we want to look at just one piece of Luther's theology though. Salvation by faith alone. I said before, sola fide. We want to start there and that's where we're going to be today. We're going to park there and, and soak it up. He didn't start out a theologian. Um, he started out as a baby. Um, he, uh, he was born in 1483. Uh, and again, now, Stacy talked about dates being like annoying, like all oh, the history dates. That's fine. You don't need to remember 1483. I don't really care. What I do care about is that you learn about the things that happened around this time period. That's what's important here. Um, let me give you three things that happened. If this works, hold on a second. Seth will bring it up and we'll begin. So there's, there's, there's four things that I want to think about here that we specifically can see in the time period of Luther. The first one is in 1440, and really by the 1450s up and running, is the Gutenberg Press. Now, if you've done any understanding and any history work, you understand this is arguably one of the greatest technical inventions of 
uh, of history. It took someone who had to scribe each one or maybe make a mold and like press one sheet over the other. This is movable type. They're able to produce vast amounts of documents, whether it's newspaper, whether it's books, whatever it is. The Gutenberg Press is huge. So the time he's born, 83, 1483, the Gutenberg Press around 1450 is where we're talking it really begins, begins to get useful. 30 years into it, information is flying around the world. Like I know that ours is way faster because of the, the World Wide Web, but for this time period, this is huge. Um, the next thing, if you know the little nursery rhyme in 1492, so 1483, he's born. 1492, Columbus discovers the Americas. This is an incredible time, all right? This is like, like, I can all, like so my next slide here, um, one more thing that is important. Leonardo da Vinci has, has, has done his Mona Lisa, has painted the Mona Lisa. Do you understand he is, he's contemporaries with Christopher, Christopher Columbus? He's contemporaries with Leonardo da Vinci. Um, the Gutenberg Press, again, has just been created. Um, and most importantly, probably for how Luther would think. So that was, I'll give you three there. This was Renaissance thinking. This was a return to, and, and don't take this the wrong way, and but humanist thinking. This was based on reason. This is based on original sources. This is very well thought through. Um, past medieval the theology and thinking in academia were into the Renaissance, really going back to the originals, really using reasoning well. This had a huge impact on who Luther was and how he studied, and we'll talk more about that later. So uh, Martin is born in 1483 to Hans and Margareta Luther. The German pronunciation would be Luther, L-U-D-E-R, but he took the Latin version, which is Luther. Um, his mom and his dad are technically peasants. Um, his dad was not well-to-do. He was a miner. Not saying he was young. He was a miner. He dug up the earth. Um, and he had several places that he did this. And he owned a couple places. Again, though, even, even at that, he was not ever rich. Most children at this time are working right along with their fathers or with their mothers or doing certain tasks, not Luther. Hans Luther was, was so, so determined that he would send his son to get an education, and he did. Um, Luther goes and he goes to school in the area. He goes to more school. He goes to more school. It is not like our school where the kids dread they have to go to school. No, they had to pay to go to school. So I know the kids are like, shoot, what are we doing? You know, but like, they had to do that. Otherwise, they were, they were sentenced to a life of peasantry and whatever they could do with their hands and no education, not being able to read. They could try to teach themselves to read. Hans Luther and Margareta gave Martin the chance to learn, and he did, and he did well. At the top of his class, continued to press on. He's able to make it into better places. In the University of Erfurt, he goes and he gets his bachelor's and he gets his master's. And even after that, he starts studying. Before I get there, he starts to get into the law degree. His dad wants, okay, we got to be careful here. His dad is loving to him, and he wants to set Martin up. But you got to look about it as an investment as well. This is a Christian family, um, so they believe in honor thy father and thy mother. And he knows if he can get his son doing something that makes money, they will probably be okay for their retirement. They won't die in squalor necessarily. It may still be tough. He's trying his best, though, to set him up for success and to bring honor to the family and to bring, um, and bring wealth. They need that. They want to remove themselves from this peasant class. So 
very hardworking, sincere man, uh, this father of Martin Luther. Luther goes, um, and uh, he's doing this thing, and he's, he did his bachelor's, he did his master's. Now he's going to get his doctorate in jurisprudence, become a lawyer. Um, one of his breaks goes back to Mansfield where his parents are. To, he goes on his way, and you, if you know much about Luther, you've probably heard this piece as well. They're tra- he's traveling down the road, most likely walking, um, and a violent storm arises. Violent storm. We don't really think about it here. We're usually in cars or this or that. And, but this thunderstorm rocked Luther to the core. He was literally scared to death. He thought, again, he grows up in a Christian family. He thought and knew and understood at a very young age the justice of God. And he thought that storm was ready-made for him, tailored for his destruction and judgment. He was convinced of it because he knew he wasn't righteous. In a, in a, a frantic, freaking out, desperate move, he says, he cries out, St. Anne, save me. I will become a monk. Weird thing to say. But he, he, he's so committed to getting out of death that he will become a monk. He will go into this monastery. That's what he says. It's kind of this like foxhole experience. He knows he's at the corner of death and he says, St. Anne, by the way, who is the patron saint of minors, um, N-E-R-S, this patron saint of minors, he calls to her and says, save me. And... Little did he know, St. Anne didn't save him, Jesus just saved him, um, and from that storm as well. But he, uh, he makes it out, and he doesn't take this pledge, this vow that he's made lightly at all. Two weeks later, he gives his law books and his cap away and the things that all are the, the, the trappings of lawyer, lawyerdom, and he gives them to all his friends. And he literally, two weeks later, joins the monastery. A monastery and being a monk is probably almost just like you would think it is. Um, his monk life is praying, fasting, singing, reading, other ascetic practices. Do, 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 do. I mean, I remember reading one point and it said after they got its eight hours, between one and two a.m. in the morning is when they would get up to go and they would sing their morning things and then they would pray. I mean, they were literally religious about it. They gave everything to this. Their whole lives, they give up everything to be part of this. And this is where Luther was at. Once uh, he remarked about his time in the monastery saying, if any monk ever got to heaven by monkery, then I should have been made it. But all of his efforts only led to misery. Um, He was at the top of his class. I mean, like, monastery class of 1509, valedictorian. That was him. I mean, not a real title, but you get what I'm saying. He was the best. He was the best at struggling and confession and penance and doing, doing, doing. But rather than being uh, uh, an encouragement to him, it, it slayed him. He felt no peace. He had nothing but misery in his soul. He still knew the Christ with the sword ready to strike, the one who could call down lightning on him. And he knew from Scripture that that was the God, that he would strike all those that were unrighteous. He was great at doing, but at last it did not satisfy his soul. Uh, one of his mentors, Johann von Staupitz, comes along and he realizes this is hard for him. And he knows he doesn't like this and he's, and he's struggling. He says, well, I have an idea. I have some papers that have to go to Rome. How about you take a trip? And I want you to go see 
Rome in all its glory and see the things that are there and see the holy city. So he goes to this place and with great anticipation, hoping that this will ah, give him some relief. But rather when he's there, he sees and describes it as a place of utter sinfulness and debauchery. Um, he sees the lack of genuine spirituality and that no one cares actually. And the continual, continual, continual acts of doing that the people have to keep on doing. And so he comes back from Rome completely discouraged and worse off than he went. Stoppitz comes again and he's like, well, uh, maybe you should uh, get your doctorate in theology then. Uh, that was apparently good advice, um, so he did it. He goes and gets his doctorate of theology at Wittenberg, or Wittenberg, and w- while he's there, he finishes his degree and begins teaching. They ask him to teach theology, which is, of course, his doctorate in theology, but then they also ask him to teach four books of the Bible, Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Little did he know this was what he needed more than anything else. He didn't need to go to the Holy Roman city. He didn't need to just get his doctorate. He needed to study the word specifically here. And if you can learn a little about Luther just by me saying it, he would beat against the text to understand it. He would not let it go. He was like as Jacob was when he would not let God go. He would not let him go without blessing him. This was, this was Luther's attempt and his struggle and his fierce, uh, his fierce action towards understanding the scriptures. And so, while he's doing this, he starts to understand some more things. Now, what's important here, again, I mentioned a couple different things, those things that are r- relative to the time, but one of the things that I wanted to come back to is this idea of classical thinking or uh, humanist thinking or Renaissance thinking. The, if I can say the, uh, the motto of the humanist was ad fontes, which means to the fount. If that doesn't make sense, all, all their, their point in their approach is to the fount of where everything is coming from. Let's go back to the original source. I don't want to read the commentary of some guy who's read that, or even worse, the commentary of the commentary of the source. You think I'm joking. This happened. I mean, the, the age of scholasticism, they weren't really interested in like the first thing. They wanted to know what this guy said about the first thing. And they would think about it. Wow, that's awesome. And you know what they do about it? Then they'd write something else. And they would continue this. And instead of going back to actually study this original work, and this happened not just in biblical scholarship, this happened in academia in general. Instead of doing that, continue they're going back to these, these commentaries of the commentaries. Luther, in his age, is understanding, no, I want the original. I want the text. I don't want to read all the church fathers and what their take is on this. I don't want to know what the, what the Catholic Church says about Romans. I need to read Romans. So he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he went back and he studied and studied and studied and beat upon the text to understand it. No commentaries, Greek, Hebrew text. His study produced questions and exposed inconsistencies in the church. He begins questioning and disputing and he wants to clarify and help the church kind of return. He realizes there's problems and he's, he says, well, if I just represent them, they'll respond well and we'll clarify in the church. That's, that's what you want to do. That's a good theologian. We would want to do that as elders, back and forth and say, hey guys, I think we're off on this. Let's come back a little bit and you know, eat some crow and say out loud, we did this wrong and we want to do better at this and we think that scripture actually says to do this. That's what Luther is trying to do. He is not like 
you know, just got a, like a bee in his bonnet and upset at everyone. He's not like that. He wants to stay in the church. It's all he knows. So he's not upset by them. Rather, he wants to reform it from within and stay a part of it. So probably one of, if, if you know much about Martin Luther, you know about the 95 Theses. So Luther takes um, the 95 Theses and he posts them on October 31st, 1517 to the church doors at Wittenberg. He posts these there. Much is said about this. But the truth about it is this. You've you got to understand, what these 95 things were were really an invitation to a debate. He was saying, hey, let's get together and discuss indulgences. Here's my 95 topics that I want to talk about. He wasn't 95, boom, he's, he's nailing these there. He's like, I am, I am against the Roman Catholic. No, he was actually just saying, these are my comments that we need to talk about and go back to Scripture and look at. He was encouraging, if I can say, healthy debate really a good thing. He was not trying to break from Rome by nailing the 95 Theses to the door. Rather, he was trying to, again, reform. However, when no one responds, and the only response from the Pope is, these are the ramblings of a drunken German, he is a little perturbed, and more than that, he's bothered that they don't take it seriously. Kind of like didn't, didn't you read these passages? Like, don't, none of this lines up. He's frustrated. He's like, okay, uh, you know, we'll do our best to keep going. And, but there's, a, there's already right there, when that response is given, there's a rift already. And as we see it go on and on and on, he invites them to disputations and different discussions in his preaching and his teaching. It's continually going closer and closer to the text. And consequently, it's getting further and further away from the church. Now, of course, they're based on, on Scripture, or so they say. The problem is, again, remember, they've been so far from the original text going back over and over and over again to Scripture. So, eventually, we know, if, if you know, or maybe don't, like, if you know anything, he ends up being called a heretic. He's excommunicated from the church, and uh, he spends much of his life hiding from place to place and uh, gaining ground and preaching, and he actually had a decent... Uh, not following, is the, he had a great following. The German Protestant church blows up with the, with the publishing of the, of the German Bible. People are getting saved left and right and changing and understanding that salvation alone is by, by grace through faith. So he doesn't, he's in relative safety if he stays out of the right places. That's Martin Luther's life. And there's a lot of good stuff there. What we want to talk about today is one of his core pieces of theology. We want to get to, again, sola fide, faith alone, trusting him alone. As Luther studied the Bible, he was not encouraged, but discouraged. Reading Romans 1.17, he knew God was righteous. He understood it. He got it. And the only righteous, excuse me, only the righteous at the end of that verse, I'm going to read it how he was thinking, okay? Only the righteous would be able to live by faith. That's his interpretation of it. And he is stricken because he knows he's not righteous. His bother, his own estimation is that he wasn't. This left him terrified because of verse 18. If you know verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. He did not want that wrath revealed against him. He understood this inner turmoil and struggle got worse and worse. But something gave him pause in the 22nd Psalm. Of course, the 22nd Psalm is a foreshadow of Jesus' suffering, amongst other things. It says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know Jesus said these words on the cross. 
Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my, from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Luther's like, this is me. This is what I'm struggling with. But if, if you don't get this, there should be a huge discrepancy. This is him versus Jesus Christ being shouting these things out. How is that possible? How did God turn his back on him? How is he alone in that moment? That doesn't make any sense unless we believe that Isaiah 53 is right, right? That the Redeemer took upon himself the iniquity of us all. What if Paul is trying to make the same connection in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and he became sin who knew no sin? This would mean that Jesus was both judged, that Luther knew, but also that he was Redeemer and Savior and loving Lord. Could he be both? He began to see the Christ as a benevolent, loving Lord, but didn't understand there's still this tension that he's a judging Lord as well. If only a man could achieve righteousness and somehow gain the mercy that was, that was achieved on the cross for him, if he would only present himself righteous, then he could live by faith. If he could only do, if he could only do more stuff and act more righteously, then he could merit this, this great outpouring of Jesus Christ's gift on the cross. And this is where Luther tripped and tripped and tripped. He could never do it. He could never merit the righteousness. He could never do it. Let's talk about two things that were really huge in understanding. The common understanding of sin, the common understanding of righteousness. We talk about this. First of all, sin was lawless deeds, disobedience to Scripture, lawlessness, not following Scripture. There are individual acts, rebellious acts, according to the Catholic Church. Easily, I mean, if you think about this, a guy could get up in the morning, be angry with his kids because they spilled something. He gets ready and goes out. He goes past the new donkey that his neighbor has. He covets that. He goes past this one over here. This guy's got a new house. He's on his way to work. He sees a woman. He lusted of her. Uh, he's already sinned four times before he even got to work, before he had his morning coffee. He has to do penance. He has to do confession. He has to figure all that out, how to finish, how to get all that thing t- taken care of. Luther's like, that is unsustainable. We cannot do that. I did it in a monastery. I lived in a monastery where I didn't have any of those things. I didn't have kids to worry about. I have people walking by. Everyone was head to foot in, in cloaks. I couldn't see anything. Like he, he has no, no earthly reason to struggle with this if those exterior things are not you know, influencing him. He, he should be able to get rid of this, but he can't. That's because he starts to realize that sin is at the core. Um, this August... Chris and I will have lived in our house for uh, three years now. And when we did, when we bought it, it was a foreclosure. No one had lived in it in two years. So my dad came down. We did all kinds of stuff. But one of the things we did is, the projects in the backyard is we took down 16 trees. Um, if any of you even know, I live in a townhouse. <laughs> it does have a side yard, but 16 trees is a little out of, out of control, um, to say the least. So he brought his chainsaw. We had cut up. I, I hauled so much stuff out of there. Um, one of the things I did after, though, is a couple months later, I got a, I got a stump grinder, and I went back, and as much as I could, I removed all the stumps so that I could actually have good growth in my grass, and so we didn't have trip hazards, because I knew we have a whole passel of kids back there. So, we, uh, so I tried to do as much as I could. After I'd done that, I was pleased with myself, got it all done. In one of our little garden areas, and that's a generous title, by the way, um, <laughs> in one of our garden areas, there was this 
little two and a half, maybe three inch stump. I'm like, ah, I missed this one. Uh, it'll be fine. You know, I'll just cover it up with some mulch. It'll be okay. So two or three weeks later, a little shoot, snap that off. We went away for vacation. It's like six shoots. I'm like, I, I really should have hit this in the stump grinder. You know, and I, I would pick off these little things and pick them, pick them, pick them. And it was like kind of nestled up next to a hosta, so I thought all oh, the leaves will come over it. This thing's like growing through the hosta. I mean, it's terrible. It's a mess. And if you come to my house, you can see this stupid thing if you want to. That issue, though, is that underneath that mulch that I covered up, after I'd snapped those little pieces off, there was still a gigantic root system gathering water and stuff and supporting this annoyance in my life. The idea, though, here is that that root run deep. It didn't matter how many times you picked off the thing, it's still going to continue to happen. That's how Luther starts to see his sin. He realized that he's sinful to the core. He's a root in him that goes down, and he's sinful to the core. And it doesn't matter how many times he picks it off, how many times he picks the sins off and does his penance, does his confession, he's always going to have this problem. And it's killing him. He doesn't know how to, to remedy it. Next thing, righteousness. Righteousness is complete obedience to God's law performed by an individual. This is the Roman Catholic Church's understanding. Righteousness, there's God's righteousness, but our righteousness would only be if we performed and properly obeyed all of God's word completely, perfectly. Uh, in other words, righteous acts. In other words, good works, doing good stuff. He must act out his righteousness. That's how a person is righteous. But Luther asks, yeah, but what about Romans 3, 9 through 12? Let me read it to you and just clue in here. Think about that and clue in. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As is written, none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless no one does good, not even one. How is this sustainable? How could this be true if you have to do righteousness? Do you feel a despair, the actual crushing that the church is putting on Luther is saying, you can't be righteous unless you do, 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 do. But he says, but the Bible says don't do. He says you can't do. How can I possibly be righteous? How could Paul glory in his righteousness also? How could Paul do that? This is the other thing. He comes and he's like, how does Paul glory in righteousness? Like, did he beat the system somehow? Luther would not give up hope. He works on it. Again, we talked about before, he goes back to understanding the original Greek text, trying to understand what does this word righteousness mean? What does it mean? Does it mean, can it only mean this? Or is there other possible opportunities that this could be? Does the syntax work out that we could actually be looking at something else and that we've misunderstood it? So, the Catholic Church's understanding, the church, the church's understanding of Romans 17 went something like this. For in it, in the gospel that is, in the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Okay, the church's understanding, we see that God is righteous in the event of the crucifixion. All right, going back and, and, and attributing that only to God and his, his keeping of it. He's the one that is righteous in this sense. But what if, what if we're saying that in the gospel, what is being revealed is the act of God declaring sinners righteous. Like in the gospel, it is revealed that people get right with God. They get a right standing, a status being right with Him. Is that possible? 
from the syntax. Again, we could spend like a seminary class and I could put it all out for you here, but the, but the answer is that the grammar and syntax did allow this to be an interpretation of the scripture, that this was possible. Paul continues, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember we talked about this, that the, the, the takeaway is translated by the church is the ones who have lived a righteous life and have proved themselves to be righteous, they will live by faith. But there's a problem. This passage isn't even about a way of living. That's not what Paul's talking about. Does that make sense? Like he's not saying, how, do you, how should you live? Well, the righteous will live by faith. No, no, no. That's not even like the tenor of the passage. So we can't do that to the text. What if this statement is not about a method of living, but about the fact that one's declared righteous can only live or be made righteous by faith? Let me say it again. What if instead it's the ones declared righteous by God, by the way, can only live or be made righteous by faith? God is the one declaring righteous, not man. The only way he gets made righteous or declared righteous is by faith. That would change everything for Luther. That would change everything. That would change the requirements from do, 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 plus the work of Jesus on the cross equals heaven and being righteous, instead to cut that do stuff out. That's not what it is. Relying squarely on Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and to, and to be declared righteous. This, this idea is like revelation. It really is to him. It is the Spirit's work to reveal to him the truth of the gospel. The understanding that do, do, do plus Jesus equals life, righteousness. No, it's a revelation because all of a sudden the rest of his life, all the work in the monastery when, and, and all his attempts to do these things, all his things and just making sure I do confession and penance, et cetera, et cetera, will equal my righteousness. It's turned on his head completely. It's gone. Instead, rather, he says it's by faith. The requirement you must fulfill and what you must do is as follows. Nothing. You can't do anything. How arrogant of us to think that we actually could do something to appease the perfect and holy God who cannot stand one second of sin. You can't. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing Luther can do that would ever merit him favor before the holy and righteous God. You must come to the end of yourself and admit that there's absolutely nothing you can do that you can you know, merit your, the favor of God or the salvation from him. No, there's nothing you could do. God prescribes one thing. We've already talked about it. He prescribes one thing, and that's faith. By the way, we already know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that faith isn't a work. I'm going to conjure up my faith. It's a gift of God. The only way that we can know him is through faith and knowing him and trusting him. That's the only way. And that's the only thing that will ever make us declared righteous in him by trusting and believing in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. This is not up to you about, okay, I'm going to believe. Oh, this is coming to the end of yourself. Forget that for a moment. It's about understanding who God is and his wrath against sin. Understanding that there's nothing you could ever, ever do. And the only thing you could do is, is fall in a pile on the floor realizing that you cannot appease a perfect God. It is at that point 
that faith is entered by the Holy Spirit, that we trust alone, that he is the one, that he can, he's the one that can only bring us salvation and righteousness. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to merit his, his salvation. This is, by the way, lest I, lest I assume too much, the only way this is possible is the gospel. And we have preached that and we sang it this morning over and over again, remembering that Christ came, lived perfectly, displayed not only just neutrality but positive righteousness to the world. He is, he is killed on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. It is enough to reconcile God to man. The perfect one, the eternal Jesus Christ, the Word, was killed on the cross. And His life was given for yours and mine. There's nothing else that we could possibly... Listen now, as this, this, this blows Luther's mind. Like, I'm going to read a few passages here, and it is, it's crazy to him. He's starting to realize this idea of righteousness, or, by the way, justification or being justified means to be declared righteous. If you go back and you look at your Greek text, it's the same root word here. So when I say justification or justified, we're talking about declaring righteous. All right, so let's tie this together. Listen for a minute. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3.22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, Christ for all who believe. Romans 3.24, And are justified by his grace as a gift redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart, apart from works of the law. This is like exactly opposite of what he was being told his whole life. The righteousness of God is a gift. It is not free, by the way. You just can't pay for it. It is not free. It costs dearly. That is why the gospel is a marvel, an absolute marvel that God would give this gift to us. And if you don't get this, and, like, and if you're saying to yourself, because I know, because I know my own wicked heart, if your response to this is, so you're telling me like I don't have to like, like you're, are you trying to tell me like the, the proper understanding of the text is that like we don't have to like do right and read our Bibles and like do all this because Jesus did it all, like it's all, it's all out there? You know, like, like it doesn't matter. There's a problem with your statement right off the bat. What your thought is that you want to still merit that righteousness by no matter what kind of works you want to do. Of course I'm not saying that. Romans 6 talks about that in, in, in very vivid language. By no means should that be the way we live. The problem is we have to first understand our standing before God. If we don't get this, we can't think that somehow those, the things that we are trying to do can ever merit, if that is at some point somehow sneaking into our hearts that that's meriting our favor with God, we've missed it. So we must first understand that we have nothing to offer him. We have nothing to offer him. And why is this so hard, by the way? Number one, our little minds can't grasp that such an incredible, immense gift would actually be given. It's absolute foolishness. By the way, 1 Corinthians 1 talks about that. Second and much more unpalatable. Get ready. 
We struggle with this because we desperately want to have something to show for the good stuff that we do. Somehow we want that the stuff that we do and we discipline ourselves to do have some sort of favor and some sort of merit. We want to pay off somehow that that was worth doing it. Look, man, I'm, I'm way better than my neighbor. Like, I come to church. Like, I, you know, I do all these things. I, I don't cuss very often. I, I have a Jesus fish in the back of my car. I pray before I eat. Or maybe the more pious ones of us in here, I went to Bible college. I read my, my, my Bible like 30 minutes a day. I'm, you know, I, re, I adhere to Reformed theology. Go ahead, toss out whatever you want to as the things that you've done. It's not enough. And it never will be. Sorry. If I told you, it would be lying. And it would hurt only you. Don't these count for something? Dear friends, if we do not understand, if we continue to think and see that Chris Lowndes and the murderer and the rapist have the same end without Christ, if we don't understand that, we will never understand the gift of Jesus Christ. I am no different than any of those. I cannot merit any more favor with God than if this guy did, or that girl, or whatever the case is. None. Our own righteousness, we know from Isaiah 64. What is it? It's called a polluted garment. Your righteousness says a polluted garment. You know what that means? That's like a discarded, freshly used tampon with menstruation fluids on it. It is disgusting to God. That's what our righteousness is to Him. I didn't just say it. The Bible said it. Remember, this is how God views it. You think that giving your righteousness to me can merit you something? It's this filthy rags. This polluted garment. This grotesque, disgusting image. It's nothing. If you're here today and you have not made up your mind about Jesus and you don't really know a lot what I'm talking about because you haven't approached him or you're not sure how you stand before God, friend, friend, please, I plead with you by his Spirit's work and asking him to touch your heart, not because of anything I've done, but I plead with you to repent and believe the gospel. It is by him alone that you can know the creator of the universe and escape the judgment. I recognize that today I'm being very heavy on judgment because you know what? It's real. Vastly on the other side, though, are the wonders and joys of knowing our creator. So I don't mean to be only doom and gloom, but man, if I can rescue you, if, if I can be the messenger to shout out, don't go to hell, listen to Jesus, repent and believe, that's what I'll do. I want you to know that's the only way that you can know him. That's the only thing that can save your soul is Jesus Christ. Believer, don't be deceived into thinking that your conversion is based on something different than your regular walk with God today. It's not as though God came by and you realized it and you stopped and you said, I can't do anything, save me. And there's a righteousness switch that they put on in you. And all of a sudden now, now you can produce righteousness. It is not like, he's not the clock winder. He is not that way. It is never going to be our righteousness. Whether it's before conversion or after, it doesn't matter. We cannot produce righteousness. So don't start thinking that that is true. Well, I needed him to save me, but now I, now I better give back and like work really hard to you know, show that I'm thankful and stuff and do that. If I can, I'm going late a little bit, but I want to say a couple things. 
please remember Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I'm going to paraphrase, but work out your own salvation, right? That sounds like a work. That sounds like do, do, do. Listen to the next part, how to do it with fear and trembling. Who's the object of that fear and trembling? God, recognizing that you can't produce any righteousness. Never could you produce any righteousness. So we do only in fear and trusting that he is the one that can work in and through us. Believer, Caleb has talked about this. We've talked about it several times. I remember we preached from John 15. We are what? The, are, are we the vine? We're the branches. We only take our life. If we get snipped, we fall and wither up and are only good for fire to be burned. That's it. What we're called to do by Jesus himself is abide, to find our source of strength and joy in Jesus Christ alone. So I am not preaching a different message than Jesus. He is saying, abide in me, trust me. Get your source from me of power. And then what will he do through you as a branch? Produce fruit. Remember that that's the path, though. The fruit isn't produced by a branch, and they bring it to the vine to give to the vine. That's absurd. Remember, we do not offer God anything from our, in and of ourselves, but rather we draw his strength to say, Lord, I trust you. I ask you to produce good works in me for your glory. The fruit is not for the branch anyway. The fruit is for God, the vine dresser. So, my final thought, believe. Luther has brought us to this place, but it's not his truth. It's God's truth. He tells us, he calls us to faith alone. There's nothing else that we can do to add to our righteousness, to bring us righteousness from God. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We cannot. So repent and trust him. Believe. Let's pray. All-knowing and righteous Father, you are so awesome and perfect and you are judge and you are all these things to us. But Lord, you are the God of the gospel. You are the God who has created and made a way for us to know you through Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, it's so hard because we are enamored by the things that we want to do to offer you because we don't, we don't want it to just be that you had pity on us because we're so proud. Lord, would you squelch our pride and help us see who we are before you. Bring us to that point where we recognize that we must repent and believe. Would you do that in this room? Would you do this in our lives day by day by day as we trust you and feed off the vine? Lord, we will trust you and we ask like the man in Mark 9, we believe but help our unbelief. It is in Jesus' name.